0: the once again podcast we are your hosts ashley and jason on today's episode we will be discussing game of thrones season one episode four crippled bastards and broken things this episode is written by brian cogman adapted from george r R. martin's a game of thrones and directed by brian kirk it premiered may 8th 2011 and had a viewership of 2.45 million the synopsis of the episode Ned looks to a book for clues to the death of his predecessor and uncovers one of King Robert's bastards. Robert and his guests witness a tournament honoring Ned. Jon takes measures to protect Sam from further abuse at Castle Black. A frustrated Viserys clashes with Daenerys in Vase Dothrak. Sansa imagines her future as a queen, while Arya envisions a far different future. Catelyn rallies her husband's allies to make a point, while Tyrion finds himself caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. And a little reminder before we go into the episode proper, each episode will be two parts. The first part will focus on the HBO series, and the second will be a book comparison. Obviously, at a certain point, the show completely divorces itself from the books, and with the book series unfinished at the time of this recording, Ashley and I will be giving our speculations and theories about where the books are going. Also, after recapping the episode, Ashley and I will engage in a full spoilers discussion involving later episodes and seasons of the show, as well as material from the books. We will alert you when we have reached the full spoilers section, so if at that point you want to skip to the end of the podcast, we understand. And finally, if you are unaware, Game of Thrones has a much more violent and adult-themed world than Once Upon a Time. We will be discussing subjects that some may find triggering and inappropriate for a young listeners so let's dive into the episode and i just want to give you a little note it's been some time since we recorded ashley but in the last episode of game of thrones that we discussed there were three scenes added to the episode because the episode was running short once again this episode has the same thing there are three scenes added because it was running (sighs) short on time and i'll point them out after we discuss them so in scene one Bran Stark is practicing his archery in Winterfell's courtyard. A raven flies into the courtyard. Curious, Bran follows it as it flies into the entrance of the crypts. Bran notices the raven has three eyes and then he wakes up. In scene two, Bran opens his eyes and Old Nan remarks from his bedside that Bran has been, quote unquote, dreaming again. Theon Greyjoy arrives to summon Bran to the Great Hall. They have visitors. Bran doesn't want to see anyone, but Theon tells him that he doesn't have a choice, as Rob has commanded it. He summons Hodor, played by Christian Nair, the castle stable boy, and a huge man who can only say one word, his name, to carry him down the hall. So I just want to briefly discuss, I, I found it interesting that Theon, and you know, the show's going to simplify things, but Theon says Rob's lord of Winterfell now, so I do what he says and you do what I say. And I, I just thought that was interesting because I was like, no, Rob's not Lord of Winterfell. He's standing in for Lord of Winterfell. And even in a later episode of the show, Rob says the same thing. Like, he says "He that Bran can't become Lord of Winterfell before he is. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it, 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 was, it was just something to me that stood out. The simplifying of things, calling him Lord of Winterfell already. Yeah. So we go on to scene three, where Tyrion Lannister and Joran have paused at Winterfell on their way south. Tyrion is unhappy with the frosty reception they've been given. He tells Robb that he might want to learn Lord's Courtesy. Hodor carries Bran in, and Tyrion asks him if he can remember anything about his fall. Maester Luwin confirms that he cannot remember anything. Tyrion finds this curious. He asks Bran if he likes to ride. Bran says yes, but he will never ride again due to his injury. Tyrion says that with the right saddle, even a cripple can ride. While Bran angrily says that he is not a cripple, Tyrion says that in that case he is not a dwarf, and his father will rejoice to hear it. He gives Bran a design for a saddle. With it, he can ride as well as any other boy. Rob asks Tyrion why he is doing his brother a kindness, and Tyrion replies that he has a weakness for cripples, bastards, and broken things. Yay, he said the title. <laughs> 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 and Rob offers Tyrion the hospitality of Winterfell, but Tyrion refuses it, saying he'd rather take his ease in the brothel and the outlying town.
1: Tyrion's <clears> such <throat> a good man. <laughs>
0: he is a good man. And, you know.
1: Though so this is the, the first part where Tyrion should be like, why do none of these people like me all of a sudden? Like, they hate me all of a sudden. Yeah.
0: He, he should be. Alarm
1: m- bells should be going yeah, off hardcore. Exactly. And he should be asking around to figure out what they think. Well,
0: he does, right up here, I'll go into the next scene, in the courtyard outside, Theon says to Tyrion that he should visit Roz at the brothel if he likes redheads. Tyrion says to Theon that his quote-unquote master doesn't seem to like Tyrion very much. Theon replies that Rob is not his master. Tyrion, amused, asks Theon why he was not received by Lady Stark. So right there, he's trying to get to the bottom of, hey, how come Rob got me and uh, And Theon says that Catelyn was not feeling well, but Tyrion has already deduced that she is not in Winterfell. Theon says that his lady's whereabouts are not Tyrion's concern, but Tyrion is again amused to note his loyalty to his captors. Tyrion mockingly asks Theon what his father Balon would think of his only surviving son and heir running around and playing lackey to the Starks. He recalls the Lannister fleet burning at anchor in Lannisport. The work of Theon's uncles, and Theon says it must have been a pretty sight. Tyrion sar- sarcastically agrees that there is nothing prettier than watching sailors burn. You know, slight little jab to the Iron Islands people. <laughs> and uh, it was a great victory, but also fleeting. Theon angrily says that they were outnumbered 10 to 1, in which case Tyrion points out that it was stupid to launch a rebellion that they could not hope to win and that Theon's father probably realized that when his two elder sons were killed. Tyrion wonders again if Balon would be happy to see Theon playing squire to his enemy. Theon tells Tyrion to be careful. Tyrion apologizes for offending Theon and says he should not worry, as Tyrion is a constant source of disappointment to his father, and he's lived to learn with it gives Theon a coin for his next tumble with Roz and promises not to wear her out too much. So this is kind of an interesting scene. I don't think this is in the books, if I remember correctly.
1: No, it's not. But I think it's also, it's here in the show kind of to show more about, like, Theon and what Theon, like, Theon's background, I think. Because we don't, like, we get it in the books a little bit more told to us, but... We don't get it the same way in the show. And I think if they didn't do a scene like this, we just wouldn't really understand what Theon's place is amongst the Starks. Mm. So I think this is valuable information about the Greyjoys, Balon being out there, the fact that Theon's brothers were killed. Right. Like, that kind of thing. Well, I
0: I just find it interesting that um, Theon comes out and is trying to be friendly to Tyrion. Like, he's like, oh, hey... If you if you're going to that whorehouse, check out Ra, she's the best. And like Tyrion just shuts him down. Like quote like he's like, Oh, you suck, your family sucks, the Starks suck. Like
1: <laughs> Which is so interesting because like Tyrion obviously tries to be really nice to the Starks, so like he sees value in the Starks mm. versus there's no value in the Greyjoys, which is kinda how you we find out that nobody really likes the iron Islands or finds any value in them overall yep. or is threatened by them. Nobody's really anything by them at this point.
0: Even the Lords of the iron islands don't like the iron <laughs> islands. <laughs> Accurate. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to scene five at castle black. John snow is continuing to help train grin and pip. They are interrupted by a new arrival. Samwell Tarly played by John Bradley of Horn Hill, a large fat boy, He nervously announces that he has come to take the black. Sir Alistair Thorn orders Rast to spar with him, but Sam immediately drops his sword and falls to the floor, screaming that he yields. Thorn tells Rast to keep hitting him until he gets up. Jon Snow intervenes, pointing out that he has yielded already. Annoyed, Thorn sets Grin, Pip, and Rast on Jon simultaneously, but Jon beats them all. Now infuriated, Thorn orders John and Sam to clean up the armory, as that's all that they're good for. Thorn storms off with Rast. John, Grin, and Pip interrogate the new arrival. Sam admits that he is a coward. He wanted to fight, but he could not face it. He thanks John for his help and leaves. Grin is worried that if people saw them talking to Sam, they might think that they are cowards as well. Pip points out that Grin is too stupid to be a coward and Grin, unable to think of a good comeback, settles for chasing Pip off with his sword. So this scene is really interesting to me because I've discussed before how all the characters on the show are much older than they're supposed to be, and here Grin and Pip kind of seem like children, almost. Like, they seem like young, especially the chasing each other. I can, like, also,
1: like, ew, I'm gonna get called a coward, like, cootie. Yeah, Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) and we don't get unfortunately you know it's we obviously can't get inside john's head but i believe in the book john has the line he thinks to himself that there is some bravery in admitting that you're a coward like when yeah. sam does that like which you know is kind of true something wrong
1: with being a coward either like
0: it, it, it sam is kind of annoying though because it's like they're in Sam the...
1: uses it as a crutch. Sam, ha- Sam yeah. has learned helplessness, is what we really need to say. Well, exactly. Because He's not so much a coward. Just learned helplessness because basically all of his father's ever done is
0: William. make him feel that yeah. Way. Yeah. His father's a nightmare. But, I mean, they're in the training yard. And I can't imagine that this is the first time. Like, we know Samwell's father, um, Randall Tarley, has tried for years to make his son be the son that he wanted and not the son that yeah. he is. But they're in the training yard, like, even if you're going to lose, like, at least try. <laughs> like, yeah. don't don't just drop your sword immediately and start yielding and crying and everything. Like, I don't know. Let's move on to scene six. Khal Drogo's Khalasar has crossed the vast Dothraki Sea and reached the city of Ves Dothrak, passing under an enormous statue of two rearing horses. vase is the only permanent Dothraki settlement and serves as their effective capital city. Viserys Targaryen is unimpressed, pronouncing it a place of mud and twigs and excrement, fit for only savages. Daenerys tells him that he should not talk that way about her people, but Viserys replies that they are his people and his army. Khal Drogo has marched thousands of miles in the wrong direction with his army. Frustrated, he rides ahead of the column. Daenerys asks Ser Mormont if her brother could really take the Seven Kingdoms with the Dothraki army. Ser Jorah points out that the Dothraki have never crossed the narrow sea and fear any water that their horses cannot drink. But if they did cross somehow, the Dothraki would only win if they could fight in open battle. King Robert Baratheon is full enough to oblige them, but his advisors are smarter. Ser Jorah notes that Eddard Stark still wants his head. Daenerys asks why Jorah sold slaves, and Jorah says that he had no money and an expensive wife. Daenerys asks where his wife is now, and Jorah says in another place with another man. Ooh <sighs> Poor Jorah. Yeah. I forget his wife's name right now. I do too. Yeah, but like he fell in love with this beautiful woman and he took her home to Bear Island and it was Not what she was expecting, you know, he's one of the, I mean, the Mormonts are one of the great houses of the North, you know, obviously they're not the Starks or the Boltons or anything like that, but they're, they're up there and it's, you know, this little island that has bears on it (laughs) and, and, uh, you know, she was not happy and he had to come up with money to try and make her happy. I love
1: it, I love bears. Yeah. I want to be the lady of Bear Island. Well, Look at my army of bears. There's,
0: there's a lot of cool ladies of Bear Islands. You'd be right up there with them. But let's move on to scene seven. That night, Viserys takes a bath with Dorea, one of Daenerys's handmaidens. Dorea asks if it is true that Viserys has dragon's blood in his veins, and he says it is possible. She asks him what happened to the dragons, as she has heard from Eri and Jiqui, that the brave men killed them all. Viserys snaps that the brave men rode the dragons, flying them forth from Valeria to build the greatest civilization the world had ever seen. The breath of the greatest dragon forged the Iron Throne out of a thousand swords of the vanquished kings and lords of Westeros, a throne that the us- usurper is keeping warm for Viserys. Dorea says that she has always wanted to see a dragon and is impressed by their freedom. They can go anywhere when they choose to flap their wings and kill anyone with their breath. Viserys notes that after 15 years in the Pleasure House, Dorea is probably happy to see the sky. Dorea laughs, saying that she wasn't locked in and has seen things. She says that she has seen a man from a Shy with a dagger of real dragon glass. She has seen a man who can change his face the same way other men changed their clothes. And she has seen a pirate who wore his weight in gold and whose ship had sails of colored silk. I wonder who all those characters could be. The hmm. Viserys says that he ha- has never seen a dragon. The last one died many years before he was born. What he has seen are their skulls. They used to decorate the throne room in the Red Keep, which is something I'm looking forward to House of the Dragon about. I, I hope they don't overlook that yeah. detail. <laughs> like, I want to see the... I really hope it looks yeah.
1: interesting. Or... Yeah.
0: The ones closest to the door were the last ones to hatch stunted and wrong-shaped. The ones nearest to the Iron Throne were huge, and the most massive of all belonged to Balerion, whose breath forged the Seven Kingdoms into one. When Dorea asks him where they are now, he replies that he doesn't know. He assumes the usurper had them destroyed. She says that that is sad, and he agrees. Then he gets angry. He didn't buy her so she can make him sad, and he didn't buy her to teach her sister how to make Caldrogo happy. Annoyed, he tells her to, quote-unquote, get on with it, and that this is the first scene added to adjust for the short run time of the episode.
1: I believe it. It's not, like, it's got a lot of information, but it's, like, I could take, take it or leave this scene, like. Yeah. Mostly because I don't like Viserys. I don't think, we're not meant to, like, no. get him off the screen. We could have had this conversation with someone else, as I think is the thing, like. Well,
0: I don't think this is the most famous scene that started this phrase, but... It's one of the scenes that led to the quote-unquote sex position that Game of Thrones had, where you have characters explaining something that might seem boring, so you better have people having sex in the background (laughs) to to keep the people watching. But that's kind of what happened here. Yeah. So let's move on to scene eight. Septim Mordain and Santa Stark visit the throne room of the Red Keep. Oh, you know, I didn't write this down, um, but... I noticed in this scene, in previous episodes, I think Septimordain was taller than Sophie Turner, but in this scene, Sophie Turner's taller, and I always find it funny when uh, you're shooting television shows, especially with children, because they grow.
1: Yeah, they shoot up.
0: Yeah, and the best example I can think of that, have you ever seen The Vampire Diaries?
1: I've seen parts of it.
0: Okay, you just have to watch the pilot, and then the second episode, because they were filmed a year apart... And Jeremy, what's her name, Elena, the main girl? Yeah. Her brother, Jeremy, is the same height as her in the first episode. In the next episode, which is supposed to be the next day, he's a foot taller than her. <laughs> it, it, was, it was the best example oh, that I can so think good. of. good. Yeah. But moving back into the scene, Septa Mordain and Sansa Stark visit the throne room of the Red Keep. Mordain tells Sansa that one day her husband will sit on the Iron Throne. One day, she will also bear her husband a son, and all the lords of Westeros will gather to see the little prince. Sansa is worried that she will only have daughters, like her friend uh, Janaine Poole's mother. Mordain says that in the extremely unlikely event of that happening, the throne would pass to Joffrey's younger brother, Tommen. Sansa says that if that happens, everyone will hate her, like Joffrey does. Mordain tells her that she should not keep bringing up the incident with the dire wolves, And that a dire wolf is not a pet. Sansa gets upset and moves to leave. Changing the subject, Mordain tests Sansa's knowledge of history. Sansa knows that Aegon the Conqueror forged the Iron Throne and that Maegor the Cruel built the Red Keep. Sansa realizes that her uncle and grandfather were killed in this room and asks Mordain why. Mordain tells her that that is best discussed with her father and that Sansa must forgive him. Sansa says that she will not. This is the second scene added to adjust for the short run time of the episode.
1: I believe it.
0: Yeah, this kind of just brought up a lot of things. It introduced some new things, like if Sansa and Joffrey had children and they were only girls, that it, the Iron Throne would pass to Tommen, like the whole
1: male, yeah.
0: male line inheriting. But aside from that, it kind of just recapped information that we've had before.
1: Yeah. And again, it's... As much as I don't like Viserys, I don't like them either. Like, it's like, they gave these scenes to some terrible characters. Yeah. I kind of want to listen to Sansa.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Sansa, uh, nothing against Sophie Turner, but Sansa is our least favorite character. Yeah,
1: it's not Sophie Turner. Sophie Turner is a great actress. It's mm-hmm. just... She's given nothing, especially early on in, like, these first, like, couple seasons. Sophie Turner's working with nothing, and I feel bad.
0: Sophie Turner is an okay actress. Um, Listening back to how I kind of mocked her in a previous episode, saying um, that she hasn't played with dolls since she was eight, and I did a terrible British accent. I actually felt kind of bad, but then I thought about how terrible her American accent is in the X-Men films that she's in, yeah. and I said, no, you know, her American accent's worse than my British, so I'll, I'll put that out there. That's fine. Fair. Yeah. But let's move on to scene nine. Edard Stark is chairing a meeting of the small council. Commander Janice Slint of the City Watch, played by Dominic Carter, is reporting that there is trouble in the city. A result of it being flooded with visitors and knights preparing to compete in the hands tournament eddard asks him to call it the king's tournament as he wants no part of it slint reports that the previous night alone they had a tavern riot a brothel fire several stabbings and a drunken horse race down the street of sisters renly suggests that they should perhaps find a commander a commander who can keep the peace but slint argues that he does not have enough men Eddard orders Littlefinger to find money for another 50 watchmen and also gives Slint 20 of his own household guard. Varys looks slightly disapproving of of this move. Eddard is looking forward to the tournament being over, but Varys points out that it allows the Mighty a chance for glory and the common folk a respite from their woes. Littlefinger is happy because every inn in the city is, (laughs) is full... And the whores are walking bow-legged. Do <laughs> you have a <laughs> <Okay>. comment? Or... <laughs> Just a little finger. <laughs> <That's> well, <it. laughs> should we discuss? It's book material, so I don't... Remind me to bring up Littlefinger, and this scene in particular, and when we get to the full spoilers. As the meeting breaks up, Edard speaks to Grandmaster Maester Pycelle about John Aaron. Pycelle regrets that he could not save Aaron. The fever struck him incredibly hard and fast. He saw Aaron just the night before in his chambers, as Aaron often came to him to count for counsel. Edard asks why, and Pycelle ign- ignantly points out that he has been Grand Maester for many years, and that kings and hands both benefit from his wisdom. Edard meant why did Aaron come to see him? Deflating, Pycelle says it was to see a book, a ponderous tome. Edard asks to see it as well moving on to scene 10 in pysel's chamber he gets the book for edard the lineages and histories of the great houses of the seven kingdoms consisting of descriptions of the very high lords and noble ladies and their children Eddard is puzzled by what john aaron could have wanted with it he asks further about aaron's death pysel notes that there's one phrase aaron kept repeating over and over the seed is strong. What it meant, he does not know. Edard asks if he is certain that Aaron died of natural causes and not poison. Py- Pycelle is disturbed, but the king's hand was loved by all, and who would dare carry out such an act of treason? Edard points out the common saying that poison is a woman's weapon, but Pycelle counters by saying it is used by cravens and eunuchs. He notes that Varys is a eunuch and ponders how such a man could have managed to get on the council. Edard says that he has taken enough of Grandmaster's time and leaves with the book. And my note here says, besides the entry on House Baratheon, the lineages and histories of the great houses of the Seven Kingdoms list, lists House Umber and House Blackfyre as well. But that you see on screen yeah. when Edard's flipping through the book. Moving on to scene 11, returning to his quarters, Edard finds Aria balancing on tiptoe at the top of the stairs. Aria says that she is practicing for Sirio's lessons. Edard notes that it will be a hard and painful fall down the stairs if she slips, but Aria replies that Sirio says that making mistakes allows her to improve. Tomorrow, he will have her chasing cats to improve her speed. Aria asks if Brand can come live with them now that he is awake but Eddard thinks he needs to regain his strength first. Arya remembers that Bran wanted to be a knight of the Kingsguard, but now he can't be one. Eddard agrees, but says that Bran can still be the lord of a holdfast, or sit on the king's council, or raise castles like Brandon the Builder. Arya asks if she can be lord of a holdfast, but Eddard says that she will marry a high lord, and her sons will one day be knights and princes and lords. And Arya simply says, "No, that's not me."
1: Eddard, she totally could just be a lord or something. Like we see, you know, Lady Mormont, and we yeah. see other female characters. Brienne.
0: Yes. Okay. Who yeah. we don't we don't know who that is yet. I know, <laughs> yeah. but you know, yeah. later on. Yes. Now agreed. Yeah.
1: Like I get his point that he's trying to be like upstanding and be the lord and be noble but like also
0: i think because Arya reminds him so much of his of uh his sister yeah and how much liana changed from being basically a tomboy to being a lady yeah um not he thinks
1: that like she's gonna do the same kind of thing yeah
0: possibly so we move on to scene 12 atop the wall john stands watch he is joined by sam Sir Alistair has ordered him to be John's new watch partner, although he warns John that he doesn't have good eyesight and that he is also not good with heights. John asks him what he is doing at the Wall, since he is scared of everything. Sam says that on the morning of his 18th name day, his father came to him and said that he is not worthy of his lands and titles. He told Sam to take the black and forsake his inheritance. If he did not, they would have a hunt, and somewhere in the woods Sam's horse would throw him and uh, leave him there to die, or so he would tell his mother. Sam realizes that Sir Alistair is going to make him fight again tomorrow, and he tells John he won't get any better. John notes that he can't get any worse, and they share a laugh.
1: It's true. Yeah.
0: You're not you're not wrong, John. Is John the smartest stark? Maybe. He's up there. It's not a hard contest, <laughs> but, but he's up there for smartest ah, one.
1: Four stars. Yeah.
0: In scene 13, in the gardens of the Red Keep, Littlefinger and Eddard are taking a walk. Littlefinger says that he has heard that Eddard is reading a very boring book. Eddard grumbles that Pycelle talks too much, and Littlefinger agrees, saying he rarely stops talking. Littlefinger asks Eddard if he has heard of Sir Hugh of the Vale. Eddard replies, No. Littlefinger is unsurprised, as, until recently, Sir Hugh was only a squire, John Aaron's squire. He was knighted almost immediately after Aaron's untimely death. When Eddard asks why, Littlefinger keeps silent. Eddard asks him why he is helping, and Littlefinger says he is fulfilling a promise to Catelyn. Eddard decides to speak to Sir Hugh himself, but Littlefinger says that is a bad idea. He points out a boy they are passing, saying that he is one of Varys' little birds. A nearby gardener is a spy for the queen. A septa reading a book on a bench nearby is one of Littlefinger's own agents. Everyone is watching everyone else. Littlefinger asks Eddard if he has a man he completely trusts. Eddard says yes. Littlefinger is amused and says that no was the wiser answer. Nevertheless, he suggests that Edard get a message to this paragon and get him to talk to Sir Hugh. He then suggests sending him to visit a certain armorer who lives in a house atop the Street of Steel. John Aron visited this armorer several times before his death. Edard ponders if he was wrong to distrust Littlefinger, but Littlefinger tells him that distrusting him was the wisest thing Edard had ever done after arriving.
1: I love everything about this scene. Yeah. It's one of the better scenes of this episode, I think. Just...
0: Ag- agreed. And I've said in a previous episode that Littlefinger steals every scene that he's in for me. Oh, he does. Yeah.
1: It's such a good... Like, Ned's just there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Sorry, Sean Bean. No. You're just there. Yeah.
0: But... I think that's how Ned is. He, <laughs> yeah. he is just there. He's... And, he's well, in a future scene, Cersei kind of even says that to him. But in scene 14... At the tourney grounds outside the city, the knights and the squires are preparing for the tournament. Sir Hugh, played by Jefferson Hall, is pacing out the lengths of the list. Edard's captain of the guard, Jory Cassell, arrives to talk to him, but Sir Hugh uh, hauntingly dismisses him when he realizes he is not a knight. In scene 15, Edard and Jory arrive at the armorer's shop. Jory tells Edard that Sir Hugh refused to speak to anyone who wasn't a knight, but he would be happy to talk to the Hand directly. Eddard is a muse. Knights strut around like roosters in the city, even the ones who have never seen a real battle. Jory suggests that Eddard shouldn't have come personally, as there are too many eyes around, but Eddard says that they can look all they want. Dum dumb Eddard. Yeah, because he
1: does not care. <laughs> yeah, no. He just wants to get caught. Yeah because he, he especially because like Littlefinger basically warned him like people are watching you need to like not be the center doing everything like yeah. don't you shouldn't have went and got this book yourself you should have like
0: no and he had
1: somebody else do it for you
0: I don't understand Eddard because people are telling him like things like this that he's being watched and everything and he still thinks everyone thinks like him like everyone has this code of meanwhile, honor meanwhile everybody the, yeah.
1: is proving constantly <laughs> that they don't yeah. think like him yeah
0: yeah, nah. uh, Poor Ned. Alright. In scene 16, Eddard talks to the Armorer, Tobho Mote played by Andrew Wild and asks if John Aaron did visit him. Mott says yes and that Aaron Aaron visited him several times but sadly did not honor, uh, honor him with his patronage. But you can honor us with your patronage at patreon.com slash onceagainpod. Smooth. Smooth. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. <sighs> he only wanted to see the boy. Edard asks if he can see him as well. Mott calls over his apprentice, a tall boy with black hair. Edard is impressed by the helm, uh, by the helmet he has made and the shape of a bull's head. The boy, Gendry, played by Joe Dempsey, says that it is his and is not for sale to Mott's embarrassment. Edard says that it is no insult and asks what Aaron talked to him about. Gendry says that it uh, was questions about his mother, who she was and what she looked like. She died when he was very young and had yellow hair. Edard looks more closely at Gendry's face and hair in surprise and tells him to go back to wor- uh, work. He tells Mott that if Gendry ever t- uh, tires of making swords and decides to wield one, he will happily take him into his service. As they leave, Jory asks him what he has found, and Edard replies puzzled that Gendry is one of Robert's bastards. Which, um, I said in a previous episode that Renly and Robert really don't look that much alike, but I kind of do buy Gendry being Robert's son. Like, they did kind of find someone who looked like uh, Mark Addy enough, like a young actor. In scene 17, in the Red Keep, the king is amusing himself with several young ladies while Jaime Lannister stands guard outside. Jory Cassell arrives with a message for the king. Jamie tells him to wait, and guess how many girls are in there with him. Jaime is angry, saying the, that the king likes to do this while he is on duty, insulting his sister while Jamie is forced to listen. Jory tells him that they have fought alongside one another beforehand. At the Siege of Pike, at the end of the Greyjoy Rebellion, Jamie, realizing that Jory is a fellow soldier, becomes slightly friendlier. They remember Thoros of Mir storming the beach in the walls of Pike with his flaming sword, and the Greyjoys being good fighters but honorless dogs. Jamie recalls seeing one of them at Winterfell, like and says that the boy looked like a shark on top of a mountain. Jory replies that it was Theon, and despite everything he is a good lad. Jamie is doubtful. When Jory asks again if he can leave the message from Lord Stark, Jamie gets annoyed and says that he doesn't serve Lord Stark. Jory leaves. And this was the final scene added due to the shortness of the episode.
1: Yeah, I believe it. This was another episode and that scene that didn't really fit in.
0: I like this scene, but I it was fine, you know, watching it for the first yeah. time. Or whatever, but I like this scene in regards to what happens in the next episode. Yeah. So I won't discuss it, especially with Jory talking about how he almost lost an eye during the uh, Siege yeah. of Pike and then... What happens in the next episode, we'll discuss. Yeah. But we move on to scene 18. At Castle Black, Jon Snow joins Pip and Grin for lunch. Jon tells them that Sam is the same as all them, someone who has no place in the world, so he wound up at the wall. He is their brother now, and they will not hurt him again in the training yard, no matter what Thorne says. Pip and Grin agree, but Rast, overhearing, sneers at Jon's kindness and says the next time he is told to fight Sam, he will enjoy it. In fact, I believe he directly says the next time he has to fight Piggy, he's going to cut off a slice of bacon.
1: (laughs) Uh. I mean,
0: this transitions beautifully into scene 19. That night, Rast wakes up to find John's albino dire wolf ghost at his throat. John tells him that Sam will not be touched, and Rast, scared, agrees.
1: And John just asserting dominance over everybody at this point. Yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting too. I, I don't think this is addressed in the show, but in the books, John sleeps in a separate place from all the other recruits. Like he, he sleeps yeah, and
1: because of ghost and, yeah, yeah, well, and he's kind a, of he, yeah. He's, he's also, a loner, but yeah, anyway. he's also emo. Emo so, um, <laughs> you know John, yeah, no. <laughs>
0: um, But John, um, he also he's also showing Rast that. He can hurt him anytime he wants to. Like, oh, you think you're safe when you're asleep? No, no, no. I'll have ghosts come in here and rip your throat out. In scene 20, in the training yard, Thorn sets Rast against Sam, but Rast only touches him with the flat of his blade. Thorn then sets Grin against him. Grin, going overboard, asks Sam to hit him. When Sam barely touches him, Grin drops his sword and falls to the floor yelling that he yields. Thorne is furious and tells John that this is not a game. He is training them to save their lives when they are beyond the wall, with the sun going down, when they need to be men and not sn- sniveling boys. I love how uh, Thorn put it together immediately that John did John, all of this. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, yeah, because John, like I said, John is already asserting himself over yeah. everybody. But uh, you know, I find it interesting that Thorn is like mad about it but also like there's clearly other jobs that we find out later that all around that sam could be doing sam doesn't have to be a fighter
0: yes exactly and in in the books john directly goes to someone and takes care of that because all the rest of them are going to graduate if you want to call it graduating they're going to move on to take their vows and sam's going to be left behind because he hasn't completed the training yeah but john kind of goes around thorn and He's to, like, yeah.
1: listen, Samhain isn't going to learn yeah. anything. Yeah.
0: He can do something else. In scene 21 in Vase Dothrak, Viserys storms into his sister's tent, dragging Dorea by her hair. He is angry because Dorea summoned him to dinner at Daenerys's command. Daenerys, perplexed, tells him it was a simple, polite invitation. When Daenerys shows him a, Doth- a Dothraki outfit she had made for him as a gift, Viserys becomes outraged wanting to know if she wants him to braid his hair as well. Growing frustrated at his ungrateful attitude, Daenerys says that he has no right to braid his hair as he has won no victories yet. Infuriated, Viserys strikes Daenerys, but she hits him across the face with a belt buckle. Stunned that she fought back, Viserys can only stare in shock as an enraged Daenerys reminds him of her status as Drogo's wife and the mother of his child, angrily swearing that the next time he raises a hand to her, will be the last time that he has hands you go Daenerys <laughs> yeah you
1: know I think it's interesting because in the book the scene is much more Jorah's involved too in mm-hmm. the book like and I believe that even Dora's like your brother's not gonna like being summoned and yeah. she's like but I'm just inviting him to dinner I'm getting all these nice foods for my brother for him to come enjoy with me
0: there's a lot of um I don't want to say it, conspiracy theories but fan fan theories about the fact that only Jorah and Eri and Dorea, I believe, speak um, the common tongue and Dothraki. So, like, there's people that think that they were purposely putting a divide between Daenerys and Viserys at this point, like, having purposely mistranslated. So, like, instead of, like, Daenerys sent an invitation to Viserys to join her for dinner, but Daraya purposely said that she was commanded to come to dinner. Like, I don't know. Maybe. But it's one of those conspiracies about the Song of Ice and Fire books that we may never get the answers to. Yeah. But I just like that uh, Viserys has finally woke the dragon. Only it's Daenerys who's the dragon, not him. True. Uh, Yeah. In scene 22, John and Sam clean the kitchens. Sam is annoyed that although the Night's Watch vows forbid fathering children or taking wives... Many of the officers sneak off to the brothel in Mosetown town on a regular basis. John is surprised that he cares, but Sam says that although he is fat, he still likes girls as much as John, though they may not like him as much. He tells John he has never been with one. John surprises him by saying the same thing. He once tried with a beautiful prostitute named Roz... I wonder if that's the same Ross, obviously. Um, But he did not want to risk fathering a bastard as his father did with him. They are interrupted by Sir Alistair Thorne. Thorne asks them if they are cold. Sam says that they are, and Thorne points out that they are indoors with a fire blazing. He asks them if they remember the last winter, almost a decade ago. John says yes. Alistair asks him if it was cold at Winterfell. With days that he could just never get warm, no matter how his fires were lit. Thorn spent six months beyond the wall during the last winter. It was supposed to be a two week mission, but they were trapped by a storm. The horses died first and were eaten. That was easy. Later, when the men started dying, that was harder. Thorn says that it is a shame that they didn't have someone like Sam along. They could have fed. Uh, He could have fed them for two weeks, and they would still have bones left over for soup. Thorne tells them that soon there will be new recruits, and John and Sam will be passed on to the Lord Commander for assignment. But they will not be ready, and come the winter, they will die like fleas. So Thorne admits to cannibalism in this scene. Yep. I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do to stay alive.
1: True, especially in, like, the harsh winter beyond the wall. Like, forget winter in... Right, the Seven Kingdoms, but like, also just John and Sam being like, "Yeah, we ain't been with any girls."
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a good scene, it, and it really shows like their characters and everything like that, um, and it shows the conflict within John. Like he says, "Like, what's my name?" And Sam says, "John Snow," and he's like, "Why is my name Snow, or my surname Snow?" And he says, "Because you're a bastard in the North," and like it's just like. This poor kid, like his whole life, he just oh, he feels like such an outsider. Yeah. You just gonna you gotta feel bad for him. But yes, them talking about girls and what they love about them and you know how Roz is uh yeah. <laughs> um, we'll move on. In scene twenty three, Daenerys meets with Ser Jorah and tells him slightly dazed that she hit the last dragon. Ser Jorah rep- replies that her brother Rhaegar was the last true dragon, and that Viserys is less than the shadow of a snake. Daenerys replies that he is still the rightful king, but Jorah asks if she really wants to see him sitting on the Iron Throne. Daenerys replies no, but the common people are waiting for him. Illyrio says that they are sewing uh, dragon banners and praying for his return. Sir Jorah tells her that the common people pray for rain, health, and a summer that never ends. They do not care what games the high lords play. Daenerys asks Sir Jorah what he prays for, and he says home. Daenerys says that she also prays for home, but Viserys will never take her there. He could not lead an army even if Drogo gave him one.
1: Well, I'm glad we're all on the same page. Where Viserys is useless. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Poor Viserys. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't even know what to say about it. In scene twenty-four. King Robert attends the first day of the tournament. Sitting in the stands, Sansa tries to catch Prince Joffrey's eye, but he avoids looking at her. Noting the exchange, Littlefinger asks if they, th- if they are having a lover's quarrel. He introduces himself as a friend of Sansa and Arya's mother. Arya asks why he is called Littlefinger. Mordain admonishes her for her rudeness, but Littlefinger says it is all right. This scene is very different in the books. This whole chapter is very different in the books. But what, what, how do you... Do you prefer this introduction of Littlefinger and Sansa, or do you like the books? Because in the book, basically, to sum it up, he just sees her and he's like, Oh. Oh, hello. Like, <laughs> yeah. you look exactly like I think Catelyn. much
1: more creepier in the books. But <laughs> yes. I think it's also, given what happens in later books, I think that's very much an introduction to... How creepy he can yeah, be. yeah, yeah. Whereas here he's still a little creepy, but not nearly as much.
0: Mm. I think I like, I like book Littlefinger. I like every, almost everyone in the books better than their show version. But I like the introduction of Littlefinger yeah. and Sansa in the books better because it does show that he is cre- like you see the real Littlefinger for That he's for like a really yeah.
1: obsessed with yeah. Catelyn. Yeah,
0: yeah, because he's like, oh, you you look just like Catelyn, but even prettier. Oh, <laughs> oh, and you're so young. Mm. Like. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he's like that's, that's, that's exactly he doesn't say those words exactly but that's, that's the vibe Yeah. Um, but Littlefinger explains his nickname he was born on the smallest of the fingers, the peninsulas that extend into the narrow sea on the east coast of the vale, and he was a very small boy, so it is a clever joke, I believe it was given to him by um, Edmure Tully uh, Catelyn and uh, Liza's brother The first tilt is held. The first of the combatants is Sir Gregor Clegane, played by Conan Stevens, a gigantic man over seven feet in height. He is called the Mountain. He is also the elder brother of Sandor Clegane, Prince Joffrey's bodyguard. His opponent is Sir Hugh of the Vale. On their second pass, Gregor's lance takes Sir Hugh in the throat, killing him. Littlefinger notes that it is an unfortunate accident. He asked Sansa if she has ever heard the tale of the Mountain and the Hound. When they were children, Gregor found his little brother playing with a toy knight by the fire, one of Gregor's toys. Gregor never said a word, he just took Sandor by the neck and held his face in the fire until the skin burned. This is how Sandor got his scarred appearance. Littlefinger suggests not repeating the story to the Hound.
1: Gregor is insane. Yeah.
0: Um, I have a couple notes on this scene. During the tourney of the Hand, the banisters of several notable uh, noble houses are present. Besides the Stark direwolf, the Lannister lion, and the Baratheon crowned stag, the black bear on a green field of House Mormont, the white sunburst on black of the Karstarks, the three black hounds of House Clegane, and the countercharged black and white swans of House Swan can be clearly spotted. I also happen to notice that um, the Tully sigil was there, but it just makes me wonder with the Tullys and the Starks especially like. Who who is there fighting? Like I said,
1: they might have sent like just a random knight to represent.
0: Yeah, I also talked to Ashley off camera about how Sir Hugh had uh, the Aaron sigil on his sword, and that kind of, or on his uh, shield, I should say, and that kind of bothered me because that's not his sigil. Like he should have his own sigil. Um, but what are you going to do? I... Especially
1: because he's really not representing yeah House Aaron at all. Mm, at not that at all.
0: Point. And we discussed how. Probably what happened was that they only had so much money for a budget for season one, so they made things that they were going to reuse later in the season and later throughout the series. Also, it heavily it heavily rained during the shooting of the tourney of the hand uh, scenes in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Ultimately, the production team were, uh, was surprised. They were briefly able to film any of it at all, and the tourney scenes... ...were much larger and more elaborate in the script, more like the scene in the book, but had to be trimmed back. Amongst the problems was the very tight schedule for filming the tourney scenes for both the fourth and fifth episodes, which prevented too many uh, shorts or montages. And Brian Cogman, the episode writer, preferred not to change George R. R. Martin's dialogue or writing unless absolutely necessary for production... Money or time reasons. His approach was "quote unquote." Why mess with this perfection? So
1: I, mean, I agree. Yeah, don't mess with it. It's you know perfect and beautiful.
0: Agreed. In scene, that's why I really hope at some point we get an animated version of A Song of Ice and Fire because they can make it as big as George wants it to be and have fantastic. Yeah, things. that would be
1: interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: In scene twenty-five. At Eddard's chambers, Jory announces that the queen has arrived to meet with him. Cersei enters and talks to Eddard in private. She suggests putting the unpleasantness from the king's road behind them. She asks him what he hopes to accomplish as hand, and he simply replies to run the realm as best he can for Robert. Cersei laughs, saying that all they can do is pick up the pieces that Robert leaves behind. He will simply do whatever he wants to do when he wants. Eddard replies that if that is his lot, so be it. Cersei muses that Eddard is a good soldier, happiest when taking orders. Eddard also says that he was trained to kill his enemies. Cersei notes that so was she. The scene between Eddard and Cersei in the Hand's quarters was the first scene filmed for the series, aside from the pilot. Like, when they started shooting more episodes.
1: I always love the Eddard and Cersei scenes. Yeah. Because they're so at odds with one another, but like... In a really nice way, like, their acting with each other is so good.
0: Yes, agreed. (laughs) And this scene also shows how dumb Eddard is. Because while Cersei is being fake nice to Ned, and he knows that, he just lays it out on the table. He's like, yeah, you're my enemy, and I'm going to kill you at some point. And Cersei
1: is like... Okay, I mean, yeah. I would rather us try to work together, even if we're at odds. Like, we can yeah. be at odds and still work together, which is how she is this entire season. Mm-hmm. She wants to work with Ed. Like,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> dumb, dumb, dumb Ned Stark. <laughs> um, in scene 26, Sir Roger Cassell and Catelyn are at the Inn in the Crossroads, pausing on their way back to Winterfell. They are accosted by a singer called. Marillion, played by Edmure Elliot, who offers a song to them, but he is refused. The door opens, and Tyrion Lannister and Yoren enter. The innkeep, played by Susie Kelly, tells them that she has no rooms. But Tyrion holds aloft a coin and asks if anyone is willing to give up his, uh, their bed for the night. A sellsword, who we will come to know later, played by Jerome Flynn, replies yes. And actually, it's a little different in the scene than I have it here in my summary. Uh, I, I think Tyrion's just like, surely someone can uh, figure out a way to get me a bed. And <laughs> um, the sellsword is like, yeah, you can have my room. And he's like, there's a bright fellow. <laughs> and like, gives him the coin. But Tyrion thanks him and asks Yorin, uh, Yorin to dine, dine with him. Marillion offers Tyrion a song, possibly one about his father's victory when he took King's Landing at the end of Robert's Rebellion. Tyrion refuses, noting that it will turn his stomach, but then notices Catelyn in the corner. He tells her he is sorry to have missed her at Winterfell. Catelyn, her identity exposed, gets up and identifies several knights in the inn who served Bannerman to her father, Lord Hoster Tully of Riverrun. She spies a knight played by Ryan McKinna in the service of Lady Went of Heron Hall, and another, Kevin Kean, in the service of Lord uh, Bracken, both of whom acknowledge that they are true servants of the Tullies, Tyrion admires her father's great friends but is unsure what she is doing. Catelyn then identifies another knight, Patrick Ryan, the actor playing him as Patrick Ryan, wearing the sigil of House Frey. She asks how his lord is faring and he replies that Lord Walder is well and plans to take another wife on his 90th name day, and he has asked for Lord Hoster to attend the wedding. Tyrion laughs at that. Catelyn announces to the whole inn that Tyrion was a guest in her household and betrayed that trust by conspiring to murder her son, a boy of ten. She calls upon those knights present to help her uh, seize him and return him to Winterfell to await the king's justice. Several knights pull out their swords and level them at Tyrion to his amazement. My note here is that the scene where Catelyn arrests Tyrion was Michelle Fairley, who plays Catelyn. Uh, it was her audition piece. That's a good It's a good way to end the episode, too. On yeah. That, like, oh, man, what's going to happen next? Is there anything else you'd like to discuss, or should we go into the full spoilers? No, I'd be going
1: to the full spoilers.
0: Okay. So we're, we've reached the full spoiler section, folks. If you want to tune out at this point, we understand. So I, I mentioned before to bring up Littlefinger again. Something that's not addressed in the show but is addressed in the books is that the realm is bankrupt because of Littlefinger. Like he's been stealing money, yeah, um, from uh, Robert, essentially from you know the, the whatever you want to say, the king, the the realm, and he's been using it to like buy the whorehouses that he owns and every like all the fine things yeah. that he has. I don't remember what we were discussing that made me think of it, but I wanted to bring that point up. That's a, that's a book point that's not really addressed in the show. But that's... the I mean, Robert also spends money like crazy, but that's the reason why the realm is broke in the first place. So my first note here in the full spoiler section is that Conan Stevens lobbied for the role of Sir Gregor Clegane, even going as far as auditioning for the pilot as Cal Drogo, knowing that he wouldn't get it, but, put, but uh, to put his name before the casting directors. After appearing in two episodes of the first season, it was announced that Stevens would be playing the role of an orc chieftain, Balog, in the movie version of The Hobbit, as well as playing the character Saludios in Spartacus Vengeance. On the 12th of September, 2011, responding to speculation on the Winter's Coming fan site. Conan Stevens confirmed that he left the series due to scheduling conflicts and other projects. So th- I just find it so interesting that he wanted to play The Mountain so badly and then left the show. Like
1: left the show, especially like for something like Spartacus vengeance yeah. and like I know the Hobbit trilogy is big but like yeah. I'm pretty sure Game of Thrones inevitably was bigger than well, the prequel trilogy for that like the
0: hobbit you plus two if he he i think he has maybe five lines in all of the first season of game of thrones but you get to see his face you yeah. don't you don't get to see his face in the hobbit movies he's covered up in prosthetics and makeup and everything yeah. um and i i don't know how tall that actor is in real life i assume six foot something six foot eight whatever but um It's not easy, at a certain point, it's going to sound funny to say, because I think The Rock is 6'5", and he's one of the, you know, most in-demand actors in Hollywood, but um, at a certain point, it's actually a negative thing to be over a certain height in Hollywood as a male, because, like, they have to get you stunt doubles and whatever, and they don't cast big actors, or I should say physically large actors in a lot of roles, because it's difficult to shoot with them. There's there's lighting issues and everything. If you've ever seen any of the terrible uh, Shaq movies from the 90s, uh, Shaq had to perform all of his own stunts in all the movies because... Oh,
1: I believe it. Yeah, there's... He's too tall. Yeah, there's not
0: many seven-foot black men walking around Hollywood that are trained stuntmen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's... It's just weird that he would leave this show... I I mean, maybe he didn't know... Obviously, he didn't know how big it was going to be. But this show is way bigger than I think the Hobbit series, uh, the Hobbit movie series was.
1: I I really don't think, I mean, maybe in his head he thought The Hobbit because Lord of the Rings was so big. But, like, I I didn't watch any of the Hobbit movies, so, like...
0: You're lucky. (laughs) The last one's not bad. To be
1: fair, I begrudgingly watched The Lord of the Rings, so... Oh,
0: see, I like those, but... we we can If we
1: ever want to cover Lord of the Rings, you can hear my, uh... Unbridled thoughts of if, rage. If we ever
0: cover Lord of the Rings, I will be watching the extended editions, um, which I think the shortest one of that is four hours long. <laughs> um, I think of- I don't
1: like any of the actual Hobbit characters. Is the problem uh, with why I don't like the movies? I
0: see. <laughs> um, but this episode marks the first and only time in the series that. No member of the starring cast was absent. Everyone was in the episode. Ah. Dorea says that she has seen a man who can change his face the way that other men change their clothes. This is a reference to a guild of assassins from Bravos known as the Faceless Men.
1: Why do you think she's seen them before, though? That was a better question. I... Ah.
0: I guess they came to the pleasure house that she was in. Um, yeah, I guess. Maybe maybe it was more so to kill someone that was there rather yeah. than, you know, actually engaging in pleasure themselves. I don't know, but who knows? The, this is the mm-hmm. first mention this episode has the first mention of Theon's brothers, Roderick and Marin, and his uncles, though without mentioning their names. Theon uh, excuse me, Tyrion asks Theon whether his uncles were responsible for the destruction of the Lannister fleet without mentioning their names. Perhaps it is intentionally vague, so the writers could keep their options open. In the books, Theon has three paternal un- uncles, Victarion, Aaron, and Euron, and one maternal uncle, Roderick the Reader Harlar. Of these four, only Aaron and Euron have been portrayed in the show. This episode had the first mention of Mance Raider, the King Beyond the Wall. Also the first mention of Lord Hoster Tully, Lord Walder Frey, Lord Bracken, Thoros of Myr, and Lady Went of Harrenhal.
1: It's not surprising. There's a lot of stuff going on in this episode, so...
0: Yeah. The scene with uh, Viserys and Dorea in the bath discussing dragons was filmed for the previous episode, but moved to this episode for timing reasons. Writer Brian Cogman was unaware of this change until he saw the final episode. One of the dragons mentioned in this scene, Vermaxis, is a nod to the 1981 fantasy movie Dragon Slayer. Vermithrax. Vermithrax, you're right. Um, It's not one of the names from the actual book, uh, because my my next note has that there were nine dragons mentioned. Uh, Of those, only the last four are mentioned in the novel, who are uh, Meraxes, Vagar, Balerian, and Archini? Archini, I think. Not certain. I just didn't want to read out all their names of the other nine dragons. Um, the pirate to whom Dorea refers to is Saladar Sand, who makes his first appearance in season two, episode "The Nightlands." Dorea tells Viserys that she has seen a man from Shy with a dragon of real, or with a dagger of real dragon glass. This is the first time that dragon glass is mentioned in the show though its importance is not revealed until season three. And my final full spoiler note was Maisie Williams and Sophie Turner were not present for rehearsals during the tournament scene, so their reactions to Sir Hugh of the Vale's bloody death were not feigned. This was felt to add authenticity to the scene.
1: Well, it worked.
0: Yeah. Although I will, um, Sophie Turner has that scream, but Arya just kind of, like, goes wide-eyed, staring. Which, I mean, yeah. works for their characters. But uh, it was yeah. just interesting.
1: I think that what's great about this episode is how big this episode makes the world feel. Mm. Compared to... Like, we, we know it's a big world. But I think this episode in particular, like, you feel that way. Like, learning more house names. Mm-hmm. Seeing the tournament.
0: Even just the separation of characters. Like, you have Jean at the wall rob at Winterfell. Well, like you said you
1: get all the I main cast in this too yeah. like plus them like you said you get all these people mm-hmm.
0: agreed um there was one thing when i was re-watching the episode that had me wondering um there's a brunette woman sitting next to renly baratheon during the tournament and i was like i wonder if that's a stand-in for marjorie tyrell or if it's the original actress that was going to play her or something. Or, you know what I mean? Because like, it was just strange that they held this tournament and had a, uh, a brunette woman sitting right next to Renly. And I was like, hmm. Because it wasn't, um, what's her name? It was just another actress. Yeah. But um, I was just like, I wonder if that's supposed to be Marjorie Tyrell. or n- Probably Maybe. not. Because, I mean... What's his name? I is?
1: don't think we're quite there yet because the Tyrells kind of decided to make all that Alliance stuff like on the fly, I feel. Like. Yeah.
0: But I mean, Loras was competing in the tournament and everything. Yeah. That's also some... Oh, wait. The torni- the conclusion of the tournament's next episode, we can discuss yeah. the differences in, in the book and everything when we get there. But anything else you'd like to discuss about this episode? No. All right. Well, that concludes this week's episode of the Once Again Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Any questions, comments, or critiques can be addressed to our email at onceagainpod at gmail.com. Follow us at onceagainpod, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. If you are feeling generous and would like to contribute to the podcast, we have several tiers available on patreon.com onceagainpod. Also, a like and a share would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. And remember, we will entertain you we will always entertain you.